Augustine um, referred to that beautiful phrase, the God-shaped hole. And he said that, you know, people try to fill the God-shaped hole in the brothel. Uh, They try to fill the God-shaped hole in the bar. Um, You know, they try to fill fill that God-shaped hole with their spouse. But I think he may have also mentioned Facebook in there, too. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Um, But... um, but yeah, you know, nothing, nothing really satisfies, uh, you know, gives a deep sense of fulfillment and purpose, uh, like, you know, the, the, uh, a direct experience of, uh, of God's presence. Hi there, friends, and welcome to episode 58 of the Spirituality for Ordinary People podcast. Today, I have a really fascinating interview with Amos Smith. Amos writes about recovering Christianity's mystic roots, and he is the author of a book called Healing the Divide and another book that is new this year called Be Still and Listen, Experience the Presence of God in Your Life. So we talk a whole bunch about uh, the importance of stillness and silence and how uh, we in the Western Church have perhaps lost our way a little bit when it comes to practicing uh, what might some might consider mystical practices. Uh, and so we talk a little bit about how extended times of uh, centering prayer or retreat ought not be unusual for Christians, um, and uh, how it really is vital for a deepening relationship with God in Jesus Christ. So it's a really uh, great interview, and I know you're going to enjoy this one. Uh, Also, something really uh, special for this, if you are listening to this uh, in close to real time, so as this goes out, it is July 17th, 2018, then you have an opportunity to get a free copy of Amos's book, Be Still and Listen. Uh, and so if you head over to spiritualityforordinarypeople.com slash Amos, just A-M-O-S, uh, then you'll see the show notes, but there's also a link there to a giveaway. So I'm giving away three copies. Actually, Amos's publisher is giving away three copies through uh, for our listeners um, or readers of the, the website. Um, And so there'll be a link there to the giveaway, and that giveaway will be open until July 23rd, 2018. So you just have a few days to be able to get in uh, your entry, and uh, yeah, if you win, um, you can get a copy of it. There's uh, And we're giving away three copies, so there's up to three winners. Um, Just head over to that website, uh, click on the link, and uh, away you go. Um, free copy of a book could be heading your way. So thank you to uh, uh, Amos for providing those for us. And uh, I know anyone who reads this, I've had an opportunity to read a a copy of the book. And it is a really great uh, book and almost like a bit of a handbook as well for uh, figuring out how to have a more direct connection with God through practicing stillness. Um, so if you're interested in that, definitely go over and check out uh, spiritualityforordinarypeople.com slash Amos. Um, also, while you're over on that page, if you want, scroll down to the bottom and there'll be a couple of links where you can help support the podcast uh, through financial contribution, or you can follow us on Instagram, uh, or you can subscribe through iTunes or a few other places where Uh, you might normally find podcasts. Also, if you go over to iTunes, you can leave a review for the podcast, and that really helps others find this podcast, uh, and uh, just makes it more visible there if there are more reviews. So if you're able to do that, it's a big help for me. Um, All right, so we're just going to dive in now to the interview with Amos Smith. Today on the podcast, I have Amos Smith. Uh, Welcome, Amos. It's great to have you on today. Thanks for your time, Matt. It's uh, I I really enjoy your podcast, enjoy your work, and it's a privilege to be here. Yeah. Uh, Amos has a new book out uh, right now called Be Still and Listen, Experiencing the Presence of God in Your Life. 
Um, and he has a, a previous book as well called Healing the Divide, Recovering Christianity's Mystic Roots. And so we're going to talk a bunch about the new book, uh, Be Still and Listen. Um, but before we kind of get into that, I wanted to ask you just a little bit about your own journey uh, to this point, and particularly how you got into writing uh, these books around these kinds of issues, particularly around the the mystical, because that's kind of in the subtitle of the of the of the first book. Um, how did how did you come to that and kind of writing about being still and listening and what it means to actually experience the presence of God in your life? What what did that journey look like for you? Well, um, I grew up in the church. Um, you know, my parents uh, took me to church uh, each Sunday, and and my sister. Um, but um, but really, what my introduction to um, to mystical experience was uh, was mountain climbing. I used to be a mountain climber, and especially in the Shenandoah Mountains of Virginia, um, I would get up to a high point, and this was a recurring experience. I would just um, have this distinct experience was unmistakable that I was part of something much larger than myself, that I was connected to everything else and that ultimately it was sacred and that it was holy. And, um, and so I got those glimpses on, on the mountaintops and I don't know, you know, and I've I've heard other mountain climbers say the same thing. It's something about being up on, on the peaks and the, um, you, you know, just the, the silence and the thin air. Um, but, but yeah, it, it just opened up this this vista for me of what um, of what mystical experience is, and I wanted more of it. And so, then when I was um, a pastor in Montana, that's where my first church was. Um, in 1999, I had the occasion to go to Saint Benedict's Monastery in Snowmass, Colorado, and I did my first 10 day centering prayer retreat. And Thomas Keating happened to be there uh, when I did the retreat in 1999, and we were having dinner. And he, he happened to say, I forget the context of the conversation, but he happened to say, you know, if you practice centering prayer for 40 minutes a day, and if you do an extended retreat at least six to 10 days, um, you know, at least once a year, you'll make progress. And the retreat itself, I, you know, I'd been on retreat for 10 days, and it really put me in this deep place of, um, you know, of peace and um, and I just wanted to go further into it. And so, so Keating's words really resonated for me. And from then on, I applied the, uh, the discipline of an athlete to centering prayer because I, I was an athlete in high school and you know, a captain of my wrestling team. And, and I, I just treated it like a discipline. So I rarely missed my 40 minutes a day of centering prayer. And I always did my you know, six to 10 day retreats. And as a result, things really started to open up for me um, in, a, in a number of ways, including my I used to have a lot of tension that I held in my back. And after years of centering prayer, the, the tension began to dissipate. Um, and uh, my, my entire back is just uh, so much different than it, than it once was. I had a massage therapist tell me many years ago that I had, you know, a lot of tension in my back. But um, recently, a, you know, a therapist told me that, uh, you know, I, I'm pretty, pretty loose. So, um, so it's had effect on a number of levels. Um, you know, I would say my whole nervous system, um, has has just relaxed itself and and, and it allows a whole nother way of, of being um, which I would say is is non-dual or non-binary it's uh, and it's not it's not you know uh, part of the left brain or um, or, or reasoning it, it's more it's just an open field um, and it's it's been the grace of my life you know it's been it's been the thing that's inspired all my books and so mm-hmm. on it isn't necessarily um uh people wouldn't necessarily always think of spirituality or particular kind of a mystical spirituality and wrestling <laughs> um, or athlete but they or, forget about jacob in genesis you know that's what that's exactly. what they forget so. <laughs> yeah, yeah um but i i, I kind of i do want to point that out as well like this podcast spirituality for ordinary people i think there are many people who are listening who are not necessarily going on 10-day uh, centering prayer retreats. Um, but I, part of it is just to try to make, uh, and some of it's my own hangups around spirituality, just to help people to realize this is, this is actually uh, ordinary. Like this is normal. Like it's, it's good to, to sit and have 40 minutes a day of centering prayer. Like that's, that's, that's not, that, uh, that ought not be unusual. 
and ought to go go ahead and be fine with someone who's athletic and an athlete and mountain climbing and and in some ways that was your entry in which is really interesting yeah um well well i think in the context of the eastern church uh 40 minutes a day of, of disciplined silences um is entirely normal yeah I, I just think that unfortunately this is one of the real tragedies of the church is when there was this the split in the east-west schism and and the western church and the eastern church parted ways we lost a lot Mm-hmm. And uh, and I think one of the things that we lost is that, um, you know, this kind of thing really should be normal, I think. But in the Western context, it often isn't. You know, it, it's very it's seen as countercultural. You know, I, I don't I can't think of anything that's more countercultural than just sitting in stillness and silence. Mm-hmm. But um, but it's right there in, in Psalm 46, verse 10 says, be still and know that I'm God. Mm-hmm. And in the Eastern Church, they they. Um, have such veneration for that verse that they actually have a translation of it that says uh, practice stillness and know God. And they've put that translation um, on the, uh, the entryways of a lot of monasteries throughout uh, Eastern Orthodox and Oriental Orthodox lands. So, uh, so anyway, that's also one of my passions, I think, is just to reconnect uh, to this tradition, which is not foreign. It's, it's, yeah. it's just that we've, you know, in the process of that schism, we've um, lost touch in many of us. Yeah. Yeah, this is uh, you deal with this a little bit in your book. Actually, um, there's part of your book that's a bit of a defense of mystic, of mysticism, mysticism or asceticism. Um, in fact, you ask, uh, is asceticism a bad word? You know, if that if that's that's in there, um, and you have some disclaimers kind of at the beginning of your book saying accus- one of them is accusations of derangement seem to be an occupational hazard of Christian mystics. Um, and so it, maybe we can talk a little bit about more about why do you think there is this, th- there can be this negative reaction to the mystical. I mean, maybe some of it has a historical root um, with the schism, well, but but what is it that, that people respond in this way? Well, mysticism is, is very threatening to established authority structures because you have these people who are saying, you know, that they are connected intimately to the ultimate authority, which is God. And so it's, um, it's something that's very threatening to people in authority. And that's why, um, you know, there's a history in the, in the Catholic Church of, of the powerful monasteries were always kept under close watch by the Vatican mm-hmm. because, um, because they were a threat, you know, mm-hmm. because here were people who, um, you know, oftentimes would, would experience uh, God in, in, in deep silences. They would be venerated by the community. And there was always the, the threat that, you know, they would rise to power and and, um, and, and so on. So so there is that. And, and I think also, you know, there's standard bearers uh, in our own um, society of, of what is the norm? What is what is authority for us? For some people, it's, um, you know, it, it's the, uh, the the critical thinking and the um, and the networking that happens with the. Um, with Ivy League schools, uh, for, for some, their standard bearer is the New York Times. You know, others, it's uh, National Public Radio. For some, uh, you know, strange as it might seem, it's Fox News. Um, and, and for others, you know, wealth uh, is, is really, you know, a standard bearer of, of who has authority. And so mysticism just challenges that all those authority structures and says, you know, there's something that's even deeper than, than this. There's something that's even more profound than than this. And so it turns things on its head, I think, just like Jesus' parables and says, you know, hey, um, things are not as you might think they are. Mm. Yeah, that's really good. Um, I mean, it kind of, we don't really need to look at the uh, prophets of the Hebrew Bible as well, who are essentially mystics. Um, you know, this idea of they are hearing a word from God. And often that word is, you know, critical of authority and power structures. Yeah. Um, at least in the Hebrew scriptures it is. Um, so yeah, I, I, I hear exactly what you're talking about. Um, I, I think as well, like some people might worry about this being strange or weird in some way. Um, and, uh, and I know I felt that way for a long time. It's just, uh, no, you know, my faith is really about just learning what the Bible says and trying to apply it to my life. And, um, and that's and that's what it's all about. And then not really paying too much attention to um, the interior life. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and I think that's, that, that was, that's detrimental. I think, uh, I think mystics remind us, at least when they're speaking out to us, they're reminding us of the importance of going inside and realizing the spirit of God is, is there. Um, so I, I yeah, and, and I, and I think unfortunately too, uh, you know, people separate mysticism from the, the root witness of, of the gospels. And mm. to me, to me, Jesus, uh, it, it you know, there's no uh, more fundamental, uh, you know, root witness than that. And the Gospels record that Jesus uh, fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Sure. And if you look deeply into the text, there are, you know, there are nuances there that um, that Jesus was not just fasting from food, but he was fasting from uh, from thoughts. Uh, he was he was fasting from activity because in order to survive a 40 day fast, you have to um, conserve all the energy you possibly can. And so mystics who who did um, attempt the 40 day fast would uh, would abstain from from thoughts and um, and from activity. And it, would, it was a complete fast. Um, and so, you know, that that was the beginning of Jesus's ministry. And it was after the 40 days that we're told in the Gospels that the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus with power. So I, I think, you know, and then you also have that verse in Mark's Gospel. I think it's a very pointed verse. I think it's often overlooked, unfortunately. But but um, they, they say, Jesus, you know, uh, why why are you doing this? Why are you going to these various towns and so on? And he said, he says, basically, that is why I came out. Now, now it came out of where? Well, I think he came, it was coming out of a monastery, coming out of a cloistered situation. I think that's where he began. And there's a um, there's a professor uh, in Oklahoma um, who you know who also uh, talks about this verse and how significant he thinks it is because there's many lost years of Jesus. And in my understanding of those lost years, it's all it also explains the the spiritual power that that he. Uh, because he was cultivating these spiritual practices um, and that led up to the 40-day fast. It's only an elite, um, you know, ascetic who can uh, pull off a 40-day fast. And and he had to have some training uh, before he got to that point. Um, And we would consider probably at least three or four years of training. And so so anyway, that's my take um, on Jesus is that, uh, you know, silence and stillness, mysticism, it's not something foreign to the Gospels. It's Part of the core witness, um, and you know, and Jesus goes uh, often uh, to lonely places to pray. It says throughout the Gospels. Um, sometimes he prays all night. I mean, these are all you know. These are all uh, uh, you know uh, monastic disciplines or uh, you know contemplative arts. Right. I and I think um, like I, I like what you're saying about training because again, it maybe connects to to. Uh, sport, <laughs> but um, but I think we sometimes might read about Jesus and think, oh, he's praying all night. We kind of either gloss over that, or we just think, well, I wow, I I tried to do that and it didn't work, um, you know, or wow, I could I like I get so distracted and and then we just don't go anymore. And so I think this is where I, I found your book, and particularly the opening of the book, is was really helpful in. In, in looking at these kinds of things, your first chapter um, is called awareness, deep listening and contemplation and action. And, um, and you have this thing about uh, giving up on, on page seven, you say most people give up too soon. Don't the essence of faith and trust is that an answer will come even when there's no sign of one. Don't give up on the Holy spirit. God's counselor is our lifeline when everything else in life lets us down. And I just think that is is brilliant. Um, but I love this idea of most people give up too soon, um, yeah. and and maybe we don't have training as well. But see, I also, Matt, I I push the envelope and I challenge Westerners. You know, part, partly part of this comes from the fact that I grew up in different countries. Um, I you know after college, um, I spent a year in India. Um, and so I, I just have a different perspective, I think, as a result of all that. And I, I have sometimes encouraged people who, who don't think they can really get into silence. I've encouraged them just to jump into the deep end. And so I've actually encouraged them. There's um, there's a uh, you, you know, there are these meditation centers for them in the United States that are called uh, the Pasna centers. And they um, they offer 10 day retreats. It's complete silence. No reading materials are allowed. There's only two meals a day. 
and the first retreat is is just a, a method of meditation they teach it has nothing to do with buddhism or very little and they encourage people to just come from whatever tradition they happen to be in but what that 10 days of intense silence like in a head of a pasna retreat does is it just it it just makes you jump into the deep end and uh you know and then after about six or seven days you're like holy moly like i'm 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 somewhere in my mind, in my in my being that I've never been before in my life. I didn't even know this ever. I just didn't even know this was possible, and that's when people, I think, start to start to you know get an interest in um, in contemplation and, and mm-hmm. think, wow, I, I just I just never knew. So um, so so that you know that's my passion is is kind of um, in, encouraging people to push the envelope and to. Um, you know, to, to get their their foot and 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 maybe even uh, you know their their calf into the water, and better yet, you know, jump into the deep end if you have the courage. Yeah, I think that's I think that's great. I, I found that as well, even with my sabbatical. I you know I'll admit that I haven't gone on a ten day uh, silent retreat, um, but uh, but even even a sabbatical where um, it was really more of a break than it was. Some sabbaticals are more study focus. This was more of a, a break focus. And I found it actually was in week five of about 11 weeks where suddenly there was a sense of, oh, there's a, there's a joy here that it either, either it hasn't been there, but I haven't known it before, or it's been a really long time since, <laughs> since I've, I've had this sense of joy in the presence of God. Um, and a, an important learning for me was that didn't happen, you know, two days after I started, um, it, like, like you said, you'll get into in, in a, in a 10 day, you'll get into like day five or day six and suddenly, Oh, what's, there's something here that I was not aware of. Um, and, and that's, that's maybe some of the giving up too soon. We might take that as, um, you know, Oh, I, you know, I prayed for two minutes every day, do that for 30 days, but you know, we might want to hear that more of, jump farther into the deep end, like you said. Um, well, and, and, you know, Pat, you and I are, are pastors and, you know, and pastors have a high uh, rate of burnout. Mm-hmm. And I think a large part of that is that they don't take the sabbatical like you were able to take. They don't right. take time away. There is something about even when you just, uh, you know, fly somewhere else or, or take a long road trip or something, sure. you, your mind goes to places that wouldn't go normally when you're in, in the usual fish, you know, fish bowls of the house and the church and whatever else. Um, and you just have this perspective. And, uh, and I think this deep silences, you know, take that, you know, even further. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, all right. Uh, there, there's so much here to explore. Um, so, uh, you also talk about how it's normal to feel discontented and restless. Um, so this is kind of, it's actually on the same page as what we were just talking about in your, in your book. Um, and you mentioned that that's the human condition, this feeling of discontentness, uh, being discontented and restless yet there is divine counsel, no matter what we may go through on our, in our lives and in our, in the world, it's always available. It's not outside, but inside and it's familiar. It belongs to us. It's our spiritual home. Um, and I love that as a reminder as well. And I think then your book and what you're talking about is then how do we, how do we then start to get at that, um, how do we find ourselves in that spiritual home when, when we may a lot of the times be feeling discontented and restless? Well, I, I think one of the things you have to get past, um, and it's almost like a rocket, you know, getting past uh, the, the Earth's gravity, you know, and it, it takes a lot of force to get past this. But there's a pervasive theology of doubt. It just pervades everything. Mm-hmm. If you watch, uh, you know, Hollywood movies, uh, um, television, you just see it everywhere. I was even, um, my, my wife asked me to get a pizza at Upper Crust Pizza the other day, and I, I went to pick up the pizza, and on the box, it says, in crust, we trust. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it, it's just that kind of stuff. And it's just on, on numerous levels, I think, in our society, people are just not interested in faith. Um, and you have all these wackos who, based on faith, do, you know, crazy things. And so, um, so I think it, it really is, is getting past that. Um, and Teresa of Avila, one of the great the mystics of the Christian church, you know, said that our, our biggest challenge in a life of prayer is we pray as if God is absent. And, um, and so I, I think, 
you know, first we have to, to, to get past that, um, that pervasive uh, theology of doubt, the sense that God is absent, and, and just open ourselves up to the idea that, that maybe this is not true. You know, maybe God is actually available, which is what all the various mystics, you know, have been telling us. Maybe they're not all wrong. And then I think, you know, when, that, when we get past that resistance, we're, we're more open, you know, to, to possibly experiencing something. And, um, and then, you know, when and if it happens, you know, we'll, we'll be, I think, somewhat more available uh, to, to allowing it, you know, to, to do what it needs to do with us. Yeah. And I think along with that, like maybe there's praying as if God is absent, even if we maybe intellectually believe that God is there, we might still be praying as if God's absent. Um, so, you know, growing up in the church, I don't know, like there are certainly times when I doubt, oh, is there, is there God? Um, but I think it's more often that I wonder whether God is going to actually show up or do anything or whether this prayer really matters. Um, and, uh, so I, my prayers might just be empty or hollow, I guess. Does that make sense? But, but is, is, the, uh, is the objective of prayer to um, transform the situation we're asking for? It, it, it's, I, I'm, I think there, that is a valid objective for prayer. But an, another, um, an, another objective uh, of prayer is to transform ourselves. You know, that, that perhaps, you know, and that, that might be the, the aspect of prayer that is um, less often engaged in the West. But, but it, you know, is that one of the main objectives of prayer, to transform me, you know? And then as a result of that transformation, it will send ripple effects throughout my, my family, my, my community, you know, my, you know, my neighborhood. Yeah, I mean, it probably, I think prayer has has both of those objectives for sure and it probably has others like i i think um it was talking with uh with rich lewis about this as well who i know is connected to you um and uh talking about really sitting in god's presence uh you you know using centering prayer as a as a method and a tool of sitting in god's presence if we think about you know being with a good friend or being with your spouse or your children, or your parent, you're not thinking about the objective of sitting with those people, <laughs> right? <laughs> you're, um, you're, you're being with them. Um, and so what does it mean to be with God and not have a sense of objective? Now, we're for sure changed in the process. I'm changed because I'm married to the person I'm married to. Yeah. Um, but I didn't set out to marry her so that I could be transformed. Um, but I, even though I am, so well, I like yeah, I, well, I like your analogy, and, and you know, um, I'm coming on uh, 10th anniversary with, with my wife, and there there are times when I'm you know I'm sitting on the couch and she's sitting in my lap, and um, and I have my my arms around her, mm-hmm. and uh, there's no words, no sure. words are needed, you know, no words required. In fact, words would uh, disrupt the moment, you know, and, and I'm just I'm just enjoying that that deep connection that we have. Um, you know, that, that we've built over these 10 years. And I, I think it's the same, you know, you can see centering prayer in the same way. Centering prayer is like a heavy date, you know. I mean, of course, when you're first getting to know someone and maybe in the first couple years of marriage, you know, there's just lots and lots of conversation. And, and so that those are the verbal prayers. But eventually, you know, you have more and more like heavy dates where you, you, there's less less that needs to be said. Right. And there's more just intimacy, you know, and I, I think that's what they're really getting at in the Song of Songs, which is one of the favorite books of the Bible for, for you know, many Christian mystics, is that, uh, you know, it, it's not, the Bible should not be about the courtroom of who's right and who's wrong. It should be about the bridal chamber. It should be about intimacy. It should be about, you know, profound union and, and a sense of, of, of connection that, that transcends, you know, anything we, we might be able to say. So, so that's a nice way to think about uh, centering prayer, I think, is, you know, heavy date or. Yeah, uh, I think it is really good because um, because when you think of when you're first uh, when you're first dating, it's also awkward. Um, <laughs> and, yeah. you know, it's kind of the first time you read song of uh, songs and it, it feels, it, you know, initially you're thinking, why is this in the Bible? Like, what, what is this doing here? <laughs> um, and uh, but as you get farther in and realize ah, this is actually this relationship um, this is what it's about. Um, 
yeah, I, I, that, that's really good. Well, and the love affair, you know, like the, the, yeah. love, the love of the soul for Christ. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I think I wanted to ask you too about this. Uh, you kind of talk about this in, uh, using a, a term uh, called uh, where we're wanting to connect with something primordial. And there's a good quote that you have in your book on, on page 33. You say, our behavior may not demonstrate it, but in the age of high-speed internet, omnipresent iPhones, laser technology, and robots, we yearn more than ever before to connect with something primordial. Um, so can you say more about what do you what do you mean by that? Because I think maybe there's a couple of things going on there um, where... Well, the- yeah, go, go ahead, go ahead. Well, the, the first, you know, the first four words in Genesis are in the beginning, God, you know, and there was a, there was a guy in Montana and I, I, I love the fact that when you go into his office, there was, there's just this placard and that's what it, that's what it said. It said in the beginning, God. Hmm. Um, yep. So, so, the, so there is something that, that is ancient, primordial. I think on scientific terms, we could think in terms of the big bang that, um, you know, at the beginning of time as we know it, um, I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a fan of science, you know, that, that all of, of matter that we know uh, was condensed into um, a piece of, of mass that was about the size of an egg. Um, and so it was all this one unified thing. And, and, then, and then it exploded. And, um, and it's, you know, and it's continued, continuing to move uh, outward, you know, as we speak. But this this mystery um, in the beginning was was um, was uh, you know it was a unity it was uh, it was one thing, and I think on some level on on a on a deep level in our DNA, um, our cells uh, almost uh, you know remember this primordial unity, and I think they thirst to go back there, you know to this. Um, this experience, which is not differentiated, it, it is, you know, is before differentiation. And it's uh, in the Philoclea, one of the classics of the Eastern Church, uh, they, they talk about, uh, you know, they, they talk about uh, purity, and, and they talk about original purity, um, original nature. Um, and all, they also talk about a pre-fallen state, you know, that this was before the fall, you know, mm-hmm. that there is this unity, and that we can, um, you know, experience it. So, so I think that's what I mean about about something primordial, you know, something because uh, w- with so much going on in the 21st century, our our minds uh, become fragmented, and our our lives become fragmented, and the divorce rate is just you know, wild, and there's just all this fragmentation everywhere you look. So, if if there's some way to to kind of um, hold everything together within our souls, within our minds. Um, that that'll bring us profound peace, which which can deal with all of this um, fragmentation and diversity uh, much more skillfully, um, mm-hmm. instead of becoming fragmented ourselves. Do you think that that's maybe kind of what you were getting a, a bit of or a glimpse of? Um, it kind of in that in the mountain climbing, you get to the top of the mountain, and and that it maybe didn't have the 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 language or the way of talking about that. But was that the sense that you were? that you think you were receiving in those moments? Yeah. Yeah. It's the same thing. It's, it's just, you know, that, that, um, you know, I, I share 98% of the DNA uh, with a chimpanzee. And I also, I, I also share 70% of, of the same DNA with, with trees. So, so, you know, there's just, there's just this uh, primordial, you know, um, connection between all of, all of life and, and it's interdependent. It's this, it's, it's this intricate web. And, and part of, I mean, I, I love some of the nature mystics in Christian tradition, like, like Patrick and like Francis of Assisi. Um, and I'll, I'll put Annie Dillard in there. Um, you know, Mary Oliver, um, they're able to just get at this, um, this mysterious, um, quality of, you know, that's behind life and, um, and this interdependence and, and, um, I mean, it's, it's hard to come up with words for it, but, but yeah, I, I think, I think that is what I experienced on the mountaintop. Yeah. And are we like, are, are people generally, particularly kind of Western culture, um, 
are, are we just are we looking for connection in in the wrong places is that is that part of what what what's going on um, well yeah I, I think that's a good point Matt I think uh, you know Augustine um, referred to that beautiful phrase of the god-shaped hole hmm, and yeah. he said that you know people try to fill the god-shaped hole in the brothel uh, they try to fill the god-shaped hole in the bar um, you know they try to fill, fill that god-shaped hole with their spouse but I think he may have also mentioned Facebook in there too. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. 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 Um, but, um, but yeah, you know, nothing, nothing really satisfies, uh, you know, gives a deep sense of fulfillment and purpose. Um, like, you know, the, a direct experience of, um, of God's presence. Right. And he, you know, he even included good, good things in that list. Like, like your spouse, that's, you yeah. know, we, we try there are good things that we, uh, where we will seek that ultimate connection. It's just we're we're misplaced in thinking it's going to provide that ultimate connection. <laughs> right, right. I mean, Hollywood is all about how you know once you find your life partner, and and you know that that everything is going to just be amazing, and you know, and there's going to be no problems. But anybody who's been married for any length of time knows <laughs> that relationships are hard work, yeah. and that you can't put all your eggs into that one basket. It, couples that do end up imploding usually so so you really i think the song of songs is the more appropriate uh, place to really put your you know your 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 feelings of, of adoration and devotion and um and of course you know as a result of that love that that comes from god you know we can give that to our family and to our spouse and and i think our relationships are even deeper and stronger but um but yeah you know you know there's nothing that that can fill the god-shaped hole um, as well as, you know, experiences of, of um, the mystery of God in Christ. Right. Um, I think as well, like you have, uh, we can come back to talk maybe about silence and stillness a little bit, because you have this uh, understanding of uh, silence being countercultural, and and you talk in uh, frequently throughout the book, but this, this quote is from uh, page 37, um, to let go of all agendas and settle into a deep silence is perhaps the most countercultural thing we can do. It requires trust that silence and stillness are indeed God's first language. And when we meet God on God's terms, amazing things happen. What happens will not be our design. We will not shape the experiences. This unfolding will not be according to our agenda. And the reason I want to bring that up kind of now as we're talking about this is just um, you know, is to try to get get at well, how is it if we're if we're going to uh, let go of of everything else and we're going to try to um, really truly connect with God? Then how do we do that? And and you seem to be making an argument that that happens really through silence. We've already kind of talked about that. Um, but then, but then, how to you know? What about the person who who agrees with that? Um, yeah, silence and stillness those are important, but I don't have time or I can't structure my my time for for stillness and silence or or I just can't do it. Yeah. Um, and I know you said about the deep end. Like, what else can we what else can we offer to folks? Um, well, it's interesting that you uh, you bring that up, Matt, because um, I was in conversation with a pastor in England uh, last week. And he said, you know, I just can't seem to, to get the time. You know, I'm just, he's just a busy dad, husband, pastor. Um, and I said, you know, you got to get creative about this thing. And what I did was um, I, I just sat down with my staff at the church. And I said, I said, look, uh, when I come in in the morning, uh, the first thing I'm going to do is I, I'm going to go into my office, close the door, and I'm going to do 20 minutes of centered prayer. And, um, and I just put a little, uh, you know, thing on my, on my doorknob that says, do not disturb. And, uh, and if anybody calls, just let them know I'm in a meeting. And, you know, it's true. I'm in a meeting with God, right? Yep. Um, and, so, okay. and so then then I would also have my breakfast stuff there at the church because I, I like to do centering prayer on an empty stomach. So then after my centering prayer, I'd have my bowl of, of cereal uh, on my desk. And then I do the same thing before lunch. I, um, I put the do not disturb sign on and, and I take my 20 minutes. And if it's an emergency or something, you know, it, it's, of course, you know, there's going to be interruptions. But generally speaking, you know, that works. And then I, I like to have um, a third sit when possible before I get home because then okay. it just refreshes me. And when I get home, I have energy for my family and, and, um, 
you know, and I can put work aside much easier. Um, so I usually do the same thing right before I, I leave uh, work. Um, but, you know, you, you have to, to make this, uh, to justify this to your church council, you're probably going to have to come into work a little earlier, um, you know, maybe 40 minutes earlier, however much time you're taking for center of prayer. But there are ways to be creative about it, to, to make it happen. But it is not easy. And I, I think a support group really helps. Um, and I think a retreat really, really helps. Because most people that I know who've done it long term, it's usually as a result of, of they've done, you know, two or three retreats. And that really makes uh, makes a difference. But um, but but, you know, something else I was thinking about when you when you're talking is um, I think there's there's really two aspects of Christ. Right. There's there's the divine and the human. The divine, I like to say, is with capital D human with lowercase h. I think the same is mirrored in us. Um, and the divine is is absolute and the uh, human is relative. Uh, the divine, uh, its language is stillness and silence. The, uh, the relative is, is words, which are dualistic. Uh, words are all du- inherently dualistic. Um, as soon as you start speaking, you're, you're in binaries. Um, so, um, so most people know what the relative aspect, the human aspect is. They, they know what it is to be busy. But they don't know about this other aspect, which is so life-giving, which is contemplation, which is silence, which is the absolute. And, and another really big difference between these two is that the human is, is all based in the senses. It's all, it's all about the five senses. The absolute is not based in the senses. And, and the only writers I know who, who write about this well are Eastern Orthodox. And they talk about that there's the, there's the five senses, but then there's also something else called the spiritual faculties. And the spiritual faculties in the mind only start to awaken when we leave the senses behind. And that's, that's why Matthew 6, 6 is so important, because in Matthew 6, 6, it says, you know, when you pray, close the door behind you. And, and the way that so many have interpreted that through the ages is that you, you close the doors to the senses. You're no longer hearing anything. You're no longer, no images, smelling anything, you know, tasting, touching. The senses are closed. And when that happens, and that's really the basis of asceticism, too. Um, and, and when we're allowed, when we really do that uh, on a regular basis, then a whole nother world opens up that we didn't even know existed, which is not based in the senses. So what about, um, so what about our words and icons and our, and incense and, and all of those, all of those good things? Like uh, what are, what are the place of those things? I mean, they're, they're all wonderful. Right. Um, as long as they're in, you know, as, as long as they're in context, um, you know, if, if they can become idols within themselves, I think that's what many Protestants have done with the Bible, mm-hmm. is they've made it an idol, you know, and it's, instead of the Trinity being what's adored and worshipped, you know, it's almost like the Bible is being worshipped. Mm-hmm. So I, I just think it's, um, yeah, it's, you know, and at some point we, we basically just have to trust the mystics and what they say, and you know, like, like Gregory the Great, you know, who said, um, he's the one who coined the phrase, phrase rest in God, but you know, that, um, that, that the, you know, silence is God's first language and everything else is a poor translation. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's counterintuitive. It's not something that, that we're, we readily believe, especially in the West, but we just have to take Gregory's word for it and, um, and try. Yeah. And I think, um, there's something about like seeing those things as, as tools. So, but that, but it, they only—it's not that they only get you so far. It's that at some point you, 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 there, there's a moment to be able to to let go of the tool, because it's not about the tool. So if it's an icon or if it's a word in centering prayer, right? It, it's not about the word. It's the right. word is helping you enter into uh, a, a certain way of being with God that wouldn't that that we as human beings would have real trouble entering into without it. Um, that, that's my sense is that, 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 that helps us, but in the end, it's not, it's not about that practice. It's not about that, that way of, of exactly. And see, and and what you're saying can also be applied to centering prayer. Mm -hmm. I, I, a great teacher of mine, uh, her, her name is, uh, Sandy Casey Martis. Um, and she was a centering prayer teacher of mine in the beginning, but, uh, but she said, you know, centering prayer is a ticket, you know, to, to get you to, let's say, Oklahoma, right? But um, once you're in Oklahoma, you no longer need the ticket. Right. 
So, so, so all you know. So, so the structure of centering prayer, it, you know, there is a structure that you follow, you know, that, to do the prayer, sure. um, and it's readily available online. If if you just type in, you know, centering prayer guidelines, it'll come up. But, um, but even that structure, you know, after you've been doing centering prayer a number of years, you can let go of it. It's it's like mm-hmm. a kind of a scaffolding, and you can just rest, you know, in uh, in the silence. Yeah, and I think as well. Then you've got a you have a base practice to go back to. So if it's just sort of feeling like a, um, where, where maybe you are feeling sort of disconnected or restless and things haven't been going well, then there's, then there's something to fall back on and say, okay, uh, w- let me go through the steps again, because it just hasn't, Definitely. it hasn't been working. Yeah. Um, well, and I always, co- I always come back to my sacred word, you know, yeah. um, even after all these years. Yeah. Sure. And, and, the, the, and that it does, it does remain. It's just that, uh, you need it less often, you know, right. than you did in the beginning. Right, right. Um, this is uh, I. I want to I want to read this quote because I think it really connects to a bunch of things we were talking about. This on page eighty-seven, you said, "When we have let go of everything else, and we might even want to include our spiritual practices themselves in this, uh, when we've let go of everything else, we can truly be anchored in God's indwelling presence." Then and only then can we have the bandwidth to love our family and friends authentically with less and less self-interest. And I think this even connects to uh, this whole idea of, uh, I, I, don't, I, I get that spending time with God and being in silence with God is important, but I don't have time for that. The, the, the tricky part is, is if we don't make time for that, if we don't figure out how to do that, or if, if maybe phrase it positively, if we figure out time to do that, if we try to, if we, if we, if we manage to make the time for that, it, it actually has a, such a profound effect, not only on us, but also probably on our work, on our ministry, on our life, on our families, on our friends. It, it's such good time to invest in, in being with God. Like, why wouldn't we spend time with the creator of the universe um, in order to have our lives transformed for the better of others even? Um, yeah. So I, I wanted people to hear that, that part of the book. Well, you know, I, I had a friend and she, and she is, um, she's part of the friends commission, friends committee on national legislation on, on Capitol Hill in Washington, wow. DC. Yeah. And she said, you know, people in that uh, line of work, which, which is a lobby, you know, that there's such a high uh, rate of burnout. But one of the, one of the things that she does is every single day there's a Quaker meeting house near where where her office is, and she does an hour of silent prayer every day for her lunch period, and she worked that out with the you know with her uh, boss. But um, but she said that is what has allowed her to have longevity in that in that profession. She wow. says other people she knows on the hill who are lobbyists. Um, you know, they, they've just all burned out, you know, after a few years, but she's been doing it for, uh, I think it's coming on 17 years. Yeah. And it's, um, it, it's because she's had that reservoir, you know, that deep well, and that she can return to for nourishment and to yeah. recharge her batteries. Um, I think we need that, especially pastors. I mean, I think the reason why there's such a high rate of burnout among pastors is, you know, if you don't have a deep uh, reservoir like that to go back to, you're just going to get eaten alive, especially in some of these big churches with a lot of politics and some dysfunction. Yeah. 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 This has been, this has been really great. Uh, Amos, I really appreciate this. And um, is there anything else that you, that you think our listeners would want to know or that we haven't kind of touched? I mean, there's a million things we haven't touched on, but uh, (laughs) if uh, was there anything else you wanted to make sure that you got a chance to say today? Um. Well, uh, I, I guess, you know, with my new book, um, Be Still and Listen, I, I, do, I do think that one of the real tragedies of, of Protestantism is uh, it was so much about who has the right translation of the Bible, you know, who's right and who's wrong. It was all about the courtroom. And, um, and, and I think the, the different perspective of, of my book, which actually releases on, on June 12th, um, but the different perspective in, in my book is is that um, I didn't consult commentaries to write the book. I didn't engage my reasoning mind, you know, it, it, exclusively. Um, I just went on retreat, and um, and after many days on retreat, that's when I uh, wrote most of the book. Was on retreat, 
And so it's coming from a different place. I think it, it might surprise you. It's not coming from the place of the courtroom. It's coming from the place of, of the bridal chamber. It's coming from the place of the song of songs. It's coming from the place of, of you know, intimacy with, with God. And, um, and it, that has, has been a saving grace of my life. It's the reason I'm, I'm still married. It's the reason why, you know, I, I still am, am planning on pastoral ministry. Um, so I, I hope it is as life-giving to you as it, as it was, uh, was for me to write it. Um, I, I had a note here, and to, in fact, you just anticipated it, say, come back to this at the end, uh, <laughs> which was exactly about what you just said uh, about the Bible, um, and particularly the Protestant, uh, Protestants using it to kind of try to prove who is right. Um, and uh, I think uh, one of the, the quotes that says we've basically in some ways created a monster that divided and then redivided the church. Um, and I think in a lot of ways, some people think that that's what Christianity is actually about is okay. Let's like, who has the right answer. And right. then, and then let's all agree with, with that right answer. And if, and then that determines who is the real Christian and who isn't. Right. And um, it's, it's about this dualistic thing again. It's this binary. Yeah. It's, it's that yeah. these people are right. The, those people are wrong. This denomination is right. All those who believe differently should go to a different denomination. And, you know, we're all just wrapped up in all those binaries again. But I think what, and that's more of what my first book is about, Healing the Divide, mm. is that, um, you know, if we can get into a place where we're no longer in gridlock like that. I mean, the United States is just so polarized politically. It's just unbelievable right now. But if we can get to a place where we, we see the creative tension, you know, between opposites and, and where we, we hold that tension within ourselves and we don't jump, we don't jump to conclusions. We're not quick to judge. We just, we allow for ambiguity and confusion and paradox and we're comfortable with all those things. To me, that that's a, a, a much greater level of maturity than most people are capable of. Mm-hmm. Most people just want to know, Hey, black and white, come on, tell me, you know, what's the sound bite? But, but, you know, that's, I think that's what, what, you know, deep contemplation finally does for you is, is you, you're able to just stay in that place of, of ambiguity and mystery and it's okay. Yeah. And I, and I don't think, I don't want people to hear that um, we should never say anything like we should never, um, because course. you have, you have some of the, that in the book as well about activism and, and, but where are we, what, where are we speaking out of, right? Is it reaction? Um, or is it, have we, have we actually gone and sat with God and then are, are speaking out of that, out of that place? Um, and have we, have we taken the time to hear the other side or yeah. have we just dismissed them out of hand, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Uh, that would be, that's a whole other podcast or. <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, have, have me back on. I enjoyed, I enjoyed this conversation. Yeah. I appreciate yeah. you. Yeah. It was great to have you on Amos. Thanks so much for doing this. All right. Thanks for your time. Yeah. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You can always go to spiritualityforordinarypeople.com and you can find all of the old episodes and all of the show notes for those episodes. Also, you can find the podcast on iTunes and I would love it if you could leave a review there. That means so much to me and it helps the podcast become more visible so that others can find these interviews. Thanks again for listening. Take care.